0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, your podcast to help you understand what's going on in the world and make sense of all the complexity and confusion. Uh, As always, I am Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great, and I am ready to go. All right. Ready to to, to defend the masses from the chaos and the confusion? Absolutely.
1: Ready to uh, (laughs) just lay down the law, tell people how it is.
0: Nice, nice. Love it. Well, guys, super excited about today's episode. Uh, the last couple of uh, conversations have really been about uh, different topics uh, that we're, we're seeing in the news. And today we're going to take a step back and go through one of uh, bo- a topic that we both love, what we call mental models, which is sort of the, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is to share ways of thinking uh, that can help you make better decisions and just make uh, more sense of the world. So we're, we're going to talk about our, our favorite mental models. We're going to discuss our history with them and just have a really good conversation about that. Uh, but before we do that, listen, we're building the audience. So wherever you are listening to this, if it's on iTunes, if it's on Stitcher, if it's on Spotify, hit the like button, share some comments, let us know what you think, what you're liking, what you what you think we're getting wrong. We'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts. Uh, you can also do that at mentallyunscripted.com. That's the website we've set up. And uh, and I, I think also in the show notes we've got our uh, our Twitter handles, which is another place you can reach out to us. So wherever you're at, go find us. Let us know your thoughts. So today, mental models—what they are, our favorite ones that we that we use on a regular basis—and uh, let's get into it. So, so Scott, how do you define mental models?
1: Uh, mental models for me—it's simply just a a framework that you can use uh, to. Uh, help you analyze the world around you help you analyze your uh, decision making process help you come to the best decisions the most informed conclusions and to just generally kind of help you make sense of the world uh, that's yeah. you know pretty simply i discovered them first on farnham street um, i think it okay. was a tim ferriss podcast i was listening to someone mentioned uh, farnham street and i went out there and started reading it and i just i got fascinated with this idea of these these frameworks that exist that draw from different areas of study, right? There's mental models. I know you're going to talk about a couple that come from physics. There's mental models that come from economics, um, from biology. And it's just these sort of lessons that you can pull from each of these areas to apply to other areas of your life to, um, like I said, help you come to better informed decisions.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, the way I think about it is is a model is a... Um It's a description that has inputs and processing and outputs. So at, at a very basic level, and a mental model is a way of applying that kind of thinking to what you see in the world to create better understanding. So just a very, very, very simple way of looking at it. And um, I I found it interesting because when I came across mental models was – uh, so, so mental models, and we'll, we'll talk about several specific ones today, it, it's, it's a broad term, right? So different people are going to use it slightly differently. I, I, Farm Street was sort of my introduction as well, although conceptually, a lot of these ideas, uh, you, we, we had already studied them at some point in time. I mean, uh, high school physics, um, high school economics, college economics, college, college science courses uh, or, or math. Uh, and other, other <laughs> fields of study. We, we had picked these up, but I think what sort of dawned on me was was thinking about, was shifting away from sort of a moral lens look at different topics of right and wrong and moving into more of a lens of of accurate. How accurate is your understanding of the phenomena that you're looking at? And so when I thought of mental models in that way, I thought, wow, you know, these are really useful, right? So whether it's trying to model behavior between people, trying to model uh, uh, interactions in our economy or our environment. When I think about the model concept, it all—it it, it shifts my, my focus into trying to say, okay, what again, what are those inputs? What is the processing that's happening? And what are the outputs? Is it perfect? No, not at all. Um, there's a lot of ways in which we probably oversimplify our understanding of the world when we just try and shoehorn everything into a model. So I, I don't think uh, that's the right way. And, and like everything else in life, there's a there's a ying and a yang type of balance that that is valuable uh, to 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 take when you're when you're trying to use these concepts and these ideas. But I would say in general, it's it's been eye opening. I know at least a couple of the models we're going to talk about later today on this cast uh, really were eye eye opening for me, uh, which was kind of exciting. Um, did you have, I know you said you came through this, through, through Farnham street. Do you remember sort of an epiphany moment? Did you ever have that moment where all of a sudden something clicked and you just went, wow, that's really interesting. And I can't, you know, I'm thinking about things differently now. And this is, this is pretty cool. Um,
1: I think it was when I first, when I encountered my first mental model from physics, this idea of entropy, um, Like you, I, I think I had always been sort of applying them kind of behind the scenes. Like it was some sort of a subroutine kind of operating, Mm -hmm. um, maybe in my subconscious that was applying them. Uh, but when I, when I read about entropy, that was the first time that it really dawned on me that I could take a topic from physics and say, you know what, there are implications for this outside of physics in how I look at the world and how I reason, um, So that was the first time that it's like there's there's just this bigger world than what I'm considering. Uh, You know, before then, like some things like opportunity cost. When I first learned about opportunity cost, I remember my professor in college actually talking about how, you know, this is an economic concept that kind of relates to your entire life. You know, whether you're Mm -hmm. making a decision to spend a thousand dollars to go on vacation. Right. The the cost of doing that isn't a thousand dollars. The cost of doing that is what you're giving up in spending that thousand dollars to go on vacation. Um, so that's an easy one. Like I said, that's, that's one that's really easy to apply to your life, but the, the idea that you could take something from physics or from biology and actually use that to help you make a decision or help you analyze why you're doing what you're doing, why possibly other people are doing what they're doing and help you to understand just the world better. Um, was, that was my epiphany. Um, yeah. And, and I think I kind of had a second smaller epiphany when um, I read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which you had recommended, which we've talked about before, um, where to boil it down, he he says, you know, kind of your moral reasoning or your reasoning. It, it kind of occurs in two phases. Right. The first is your intuition. Right. That's your gut reaction. And then all the reasoning occurs in the second phase where you're trying to justify that intuition. Okay. And when I kind of understood that, I realized that the mental model doesn't come in the first part. It comes in the second part and, um, your intuition gives you that initial gut response. Then you apply the mental model to it and sort of say, how accurate is this gut response? Can, can I justify this gut response? Mm. And yeah. you know, sometimes that creates a cognitive, a bit of cognitive dissonance because the mental model saying, you know, your your intuition is saying X, the mental model saying Y. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so then you have it's to try to right, yeah. So then you have to try to resolve those. And yeah. you know, sometimes, like you said, um, we can't just boil everything down to these mental models sometimes you just stick with your intuition even though the model maybe yeah. says different because remember right. you know one model we're not going to talk about it today but we brought it up before is the map is not the territory right the model right the model is just a model of the real world so sometimes your intuition has to um, trump that because there could be something you're not taking into account but in other situations like I've definitely changed. I've sort of forced myself, learned how to force myself to overcome that cognitive dissonance based on the mental model. And I think that's been really valuable. So that's that's maybe kind of a sub-epiphany possibly yeah. that's that's helped me approach the world. How about Definitely, you? Uh, yeah. I mean, what's yeah, your so, epiphany?
0: Yeah. So, uh, no, I, those are great because it, it, it makes me think about all the times I started to, to see things differently. Um, you know, one of them was way well before – um uh, I actually came across this the the term of mental model and it was reading uh, Thomas Sowell's work and talking about second order consequences and and I think it's in applied economics and it it's such an easy easy idea but he he has a story and I think it's maybe even the prologue of the book where he talks about uh, being in a in a classroom where the professor asked all the students to answer a question, so he put some kind of uh, challenge before them, and said, "Well, how would you solve it as an economist?" And you know, students said, "Well, I, I would do these these things," and they said, "And then," and the student kind of paused. And, oh, "Well, then," he's, "Well, then what happens?" And then he he did that six times, right, um, or seven times, whatever the number is, whatever the case. And it and it it really got the the gears churning on what what does happen what are the the second order impacts as we as we call them which is which is a great model it, it really did make me start to contemplate how, how, what what is in front of my you know visually what's in front of me what's on my my frontal lobe if you will that I'm actually contemplating today versus what's what's down the uh, what's down the path and so that, that was kind of and that was that was years ago uh, and I know that's a model I was I was gonna bring up today the 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 one of the other epiphanies that came about was actually exactly what you just described, uh, which was about sort of this idea of my intuition versus my my logic, right? So this this rational mind justifying what my what I'm, my emotion says. Uh, that was that was uh, when I was reading that in height. That really when I, when I thought about that as a as a description for the way in which I'm going through these processes, it, it really took out the desire to be uh, arguing with people in the same way. Uh, because I, if I accept that my, my decision-making process is no different than theirs, then it, um, or if it follows a similar routine, then it, it gives me, um, a way to sort of step back and, and take what I'm feeling off, off my chest, because I I can feel very emotive about a topic and realize that, you know, those emotions are there, but it's, it's not really, (laughs) maybe I haven't come up with the, 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 best logic,
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, oh, just to, I think like right now we can see a lot of examples of how, how important it is um, to kind of understand these mental models. Um, mm-hmm. so, and I keep trying to stop saying kind of, I notice I say that a lot. So <laughs> I have to get an electroshock thing here to kind of shock myself every time I say kind of, but I, I saw those on Amazon. <laughs> we can we order some from right. the evil empire. <laughs> um, so we're seeing a a time now where a lot of people are reacting with intuition and then they don't seem to be progressing to that reason stage Um, Mm -hmm. when you know um, like recently the Partial canceling of Dr. Seuss or, um, you know, Mr. Potato Head becoming gender neutral, right? These are things that intuitively I think a lot of people say, yeah, this is great, right? We're, you know, we're making the world better. But then they don't really go into that reasoning step saying, okay, well, I mean, okay, is this really necessary? What's, what is the <laughs> long term impact of this? Um, yeah. Or if they do go into that reasoning stage, and this is where mental models are very important for, you, as you're listening to people talk about this, you can start to see all their biases that are coming in to justify that that reasoning. Um, So, you know, I think this is really an important topic right now, and I think this is good no matter which side of the aisle you fall on, no matter what color you claim to be, red, blue, yellow, um, you know... being able to apply this and being able to kind of see maybe how the reasoning is going and also being able to identify when you're talking to someone who is not going to be swayed by logic, um, is hugely beneficial. Um, so I, I'm glad that we're, when we decided to come up or when you came up with this topic, I'm glad we decided to do this. It's, it was really enlightening for me. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I I did want to share one last sort of, I'm not sure it's an epiphany, but it was a. It was kind of one of those enlightening moments. Maybe that is an epiphany, but I was reading a article, and I think it was in a. It was in a mathematics magazine, of some kind. I, I, I want to say Quantum or Quanta, but I'm, I'm sure I'm getting the name wrong. Came across it on Twitter. I, if you use Twitter as an information network, you, you can be absolutely amazing. Uh, if you use it to to just fuel the, the hatred on politics, it's a complete waste of time. But I, I have found it to be amazingly useful. It's, it's how I came across Barnum Street and Mental Model. So of course I'm I'm very very pro Twitter from that perspective. But the the article was describing uh, expert predictions and how they compare it to group predictions of non-expert polymaths. And the article. Included that experts uh, aren't able to predict uh, better, and oftentimes are not as accurate as the polymaths. And the polymaths that they're obviously bringing—they're not just bringing the layperson that has no no idea at all about anything. They're bringing people that are sophisticated in other domains, but actually are are able to think in ment- mental models. Because that's what you find when you talk to a lot of polymaths—they have expertise in uh, sufficient expertise or understanding in these different areas, and they're able to take th- that knowledge and bring it together to have a new viewpoint on a topic. And it it really did dawn on me the value of having some person, because as you talked about, you have your biases that, that start to play into your decision-making process. The expert is going to look at a topic from everything that they know, and they're going to over-index on specific variables that make sense to them. Versus someone who can come at the problem from a completely layman perspective, but, but think through different models that could explain some of the phenomena. And especially if you have a group of those people, they can help you um, think about a challenge or a topic differently. And, you know, the, the, one, one of the, the great examples of that, I would say, is, a, you know, our, I think our, our grand polymath in this world has to be Elon Musk. And his approach to SpaceX, of trying to bring down the cost curve and the way in which he did that and actually breaking down the components and the subcomponents of the rocket fuel, thinking about different ways of doing short contracts and long contracts on the fuel, then also doing these reusable rockets. He didn't do any of that on his own, but the concepts behind it were sort of the pushing. A lot of that's from engineering discipline, but he takes a different perspective that NASA never did right? And you have brilliant minds working at NASA. Uh, you have brilliant minds that probably work in, the, in all aspects of our government, uh, it, but they're capped on what they can actually do and think. And then, of course, they have the wrong incentive structures in, in too, many, too many ways. And I know that's not what we're talking about today, but incentives matter. <laughs> Scott, Scott likes to remind us. Um, so, okay. So, we, we've kind of gone over mental models, why they impacted us, the way we think, why don't we start talking about some of the the mental models so we're gonna we, we each came up with a couple that we really like we want to talk about those and uh, Scott why don't you kick us off with with your kind of the first one you want to talk about
1: okay and keeping with what we were just talking about um, my first one is confirmation bias and this one is I consider this probably the most fundamental or one of the most fundamental mental models uh, so confirmation bias that's our tendency to search for interpret favor and recall information in a way that confirms, um, or supports our prior beliefs. Um, so if you, uh, if you think Donald Trump is an evil, awful person, then you're going to pay more attention to pay more notice to, uh, information that comes through the news, confirming that that Donald Trump is evil and anything that comes through saying, showing that he's, you know, maybe a little bit of a nicer guy, soft hearted, you're going to pay less attention to that. Uh, It's more likely that you're going to forget that later on down the road when you're forming your opinions about, about him. And we all do it. This, this one is, is difficult. And that's why I listed it as number one, because it's something to always be aware of. Uh, You know, like you said, when an expert is trying to make a decision, right, they approach everything from that expert position of what they know. I, um, I knew someone once who she was having some shoulder pain and she went and saw like four different specialists. Um, and each specialist approached it from the point of view of their specialty. The chiropractor said it was a misalignment in her back. You know, the, another doctor said, um, it was, you know, a, a inflamed tissue in her shoulder or something like that, and each had their own treatments. Um, yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting, and it, it reminds me of that saying, you know, like when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's. that's <laughs> yes. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. Um, yeah. And so the way you can kind the way you can overcome I almost did it I almost said kind of um, the way you can overcome <laughs> it is to purposely seek out disconfirming information. Uh so if you let's say you're in the market for a new truck and you've just always liked the Ford F150 and you're out on the road you see F150s everywhere and that that's confirming your bias right saying well if all these other people are buying F150s this must be a great truck so stop looking for f-150s and start looking for toyota tundras or something like that see how many of those are out on the road and specifically go out and look for information about why the f-150 about its shortcomings and start seeking out information about why the tundra is the superior car or the superior truck and then weigh that in be sure to to include that in your decision making Uh, and the other thing too is like They're there and it would take an incredible amount of effort and energy to constantly try to identify your biases that are coming into play. So a good thing to keep in mind here is like how high stakes is the decision that you're coming to. Uh, if right. it's a pretty low stakes decision, like what color socks to put on, like your, your confirmation bias, maybe not, it's, it's maybe not <laughs> worth analyzing. Um, but uh, you know, oh. something like, a big... I, I don't want you, I don't <laughs> want you to downgrade
0: the value of socks. Okay. Well, as, yeah. as a sock man myself, well, yeah. I've got a crazy
1: drawer full of, uh,
0: yeah.
1: all kinds of great socks. <laughs> yeah. You got to always make sure your socks match your hat and all that stuff. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, um, that's something to keep in mind. But uh, like I said, uh, to repeat myself a little bit here. I think this is confirmation bias is something it's just, it's just out there and it seems to be a a foundational element or, or just something that's existing underneath everything that is going on in the world.
0: Yeah. Well, I, no, I, I, you know, you say that I'm I'm thinking about is there's uh, and I'll come back to Twitter in any social media network. If you're making a decision on, on who to follow, you you see information that's shared and and your gut goes yeah that's exactly what i thought of course it was that way right and uh, as you said that's that's fine on on probably 50 60 80% of your life it doesn't really matter it depends on the criticality of the decision right so if it, if it comes down to where you're going to live you're buying a home Right, and you're saying, oh, you know, well, everyone's buying in this area, and the prices seem really high, but that can't be the problem because everyone's buying it, right? And You're seeing all these home prices going up. Maybe take a step back and say, well, you know, is, are there other kinds of information in there that uh, may, maybe I just really want to buy a house in that area? I'm, I'm dying. even though I know I can't afford it, right? So there's there's, there's um, when you, when your gut is telling you, oh, this feels perfect. This is exactly what I was expecting. You should be asking yourself: Am I? Is there something I'm missing? Have I triangulated? And that's one of my favorite techniques. We, uh, you know, it's it's not new at all, but uh, the, just the idea of getting uh, information that's that's contrary, three or four different sources, different perspectives, and bringing those together to provide a more informed idea and a more more informed decision. Um, but I mean. You know, so the, the good one is I'll, I'll read stuff from Michael Schellenberger about energy, and he's he's very much a pro-nuclear. So he shares a lot of the information about uh, nuclear energy. So I'll read it and go, yeah, that's right. And then I have to think to myself, well, what, you know, he's he's biased, right? And he's biased because of all the work that he's done uh, to try and do green tech and come to the conclusion, no, we need we need nuclear. So of course he's biased. He's pulling up all these studies that show that. Uh, where they've had green tech, it hasn't been as successful as they want it to be or there's extra costs. So of course, you know, but but there's another side of it too, right? I mean, the, the cost of doing nuclear, the offsetting side of the the, uh, the waste. So again, pull yourself back from the, from the precipice. Think about uh, uh, what your gut is telling you, how much you're, you're confirming exactly what you already know and then ask, have I triangulated or have I not? And it doesn't matter. But I, I think that's a great model. And it's, as you said, we're all biased. We should all realize it. And then when it matters, we should know about it.
1: So do you want to, uh, you want to go into your, your next model? Um, yeah, we can go ahead and move on here. Um, so my second one is called the fundamental attribution error. And this is another one that I consider con- uh, almost did it again caught myself, didn't say it, um, a, a, another foundational model. So similar to confirmation bias, this is one that we do all the time without thinking or frequently without thinking about it. So um, fundamental attribution error. Um, sometimes people call it correspondence bias or the attribution effect. Uh, this is our tendency to under emphasize situational explanations for another person's behavior. Uh, while overemphasizing uh, dispositional or personality-based explanations for their behavior. Uh, To put it into English, uh, (laughs) when, when we're judging someone else's actions, we tend to judge it based off of what we perceive to be their personality. Then when we judge our actions, we judge them based off the situation. Uh, So, for example, um, if you're driving to work in the morning and someone runs a stop sign and, you know, causes you to spill your coffee because you have to slam on the brakes, you you instantly assume that that person's incompetent, stupid, um, they shouldn't be driving. Flip it around, right? You run a stop sign and you cause someone else to have to slam on their brakes. You don't view it as you being incompetent. It's maybe because you're running late for work because the alarm didn't go off. You know, the, the dog puked on the floor or something like that. You're, you're judging yourself based on the situation. Mm, And uh, one personal experience I had with this was when I was working with the government doing affirmative action, there were people in the office uh, who believed that uh, all hiring managers in all companies were racist. You know, So yeah. whenever we, we were reviewing a company and we saw indicators of discrimination, they didn't want to look at it. Well, what's the situation? Why is it possibly that one group is being favored over another? Their instant reaction was just, no, these people, they're racist. They just don't like this particular race and they don't want to hire them. And the problem with that, though, is like you you, you have to show these folks a lot of evidence to overcome that. Mm-hmm. so you're you're already starting off from a biased position when when you engage in the fundamental attribution error so the way you overcome it is to just again take a step back and look at it reasonably say now if the situation were reversed how would i think about it so again you know the running the stop sign thing like i said if if i were the one running that stop sign what would i think of myself what would be the possible explanations and you can kind of draw Hanlon's razor into this too, right? Don't attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. So if you don't have mm-hmm. any evidence that that person drive running the stop sign is just a stupid jerk who, you know, wants to cause problems, then don't start there as the default. Start there as, well, maybe there was something else going on that I'm not aware of that caused them to make a mistake. And yeah. when you do that, it it, it it you have more empathy. I think it brings more empathy yeah. out for other people when you do that. Uh, so that's why I think this one's really important. And like I said, it, it we all do it. it. It's just one of those things that's kind of always sort of running in the background. Uh, but when mm-hmm. we can catch ourselves doing it and correcting it, then I think it improves our, our interactions with other people. I, I feel like,
0: and I, again, this is another model or concept that I just think is so powerful that is poorly understood or at least ignored by many, many people, and you see this every day on social media, uh, where people will just say, "Well, that that person," uh, they'll do the opposite of this, right? They're 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 constantly making an assumption about why someone took some action. So, I mean, do, do you is that how you see it? Do you see that? I mean, I feel like we're we're missing this all the time, and if we just if we just thought about this a little bit more, we would have more empathy for everybody.
1: Exactly. And this is maybe one of the downsides of the internet is when we're not actually there and seeing the action. We're not seeing the look on the person's face or or seeing the other variables that are going into it. We're just reading about some narrow part of what happened. And then we're making a judgment based on that. Um, yep. So it, uh, it kind of reminds me of the story about the cop shooting the black man in Kenosha. It was a lot of the story was well, a cop shot a black man in the back. Um, But then there's a lot more. So the cop shot the black man in the back, therefore, he's evil, a bad person. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot more information going on there to where I think a lot of people, if you were to put yourself in that situation, if you're being honest with yourself, I think a lot of us could really see ourselves reacting in the same way this cop did not saying that that's right or wrong just saying that putting ourselves in that situation you know and being honest um it's maybe not as an extreme of us of uh, an outcome as we're being led to believe it is
0: right yeah
1: no i again i feel like we've
0: as a as a society, and this is this is being very much an American living in America right now, <clears throat> we've lost this ability, this capability, and and it's not just that I see it on social media. When I speak to people, they're they're overriding it. It's, they 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 it's it, it almost goes back to your previous model of confirmation bias. They see they see uh, something happen. Well, yeah, this is exactly it. There's there's a bunch of in this case, let's just say there's racist cops they are out to go kill people uh well i'm, I'm going to assume that of course because the racist that i'm i'm looking at the the attribution error and i'm thinking well no it, it must be that it's that it, there's no context that could explain anything so it's it's a lot about uh, at least you know observationally it's a, it's a lot about saying okay is my gut wrong my gut feels a certain way i'm angry i'm angry about the 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 events that took place i'm angry about the harm that was caused but is that making me blind to to the to the um Context that I need to consider. Yeah. Okay. So no, I think
1: I think it's another really good one. All right. What What do you got next for us? Uh, so my next one is false consensus effect, and this is where we have a tendency to see our own behavioral choices and judgments as common and um, appropriate to the existing circumstances. So we see the way we react to something as being normal, and anyone who doesn't react the same way we did. There's something wrong with them or we that'll mm. cause us to judge them. Um, so uh, the, the one example that I came up with is um, right after the, uh, the Charlottesville incident uh, with the protests to, for taking down the Confederate statue. Uh, I had a friend who he was 100% on the, You know, we we can't let these neo Nazis have a voice. You know, their their rhetoric, their language, it should all be outlawed. You should not be allowed to say this. And when I told him, I said, "Well, I mean, if you're going to support free speech, then you have to support speech that you may not like." And he just, I remember the look on his face was like, "I mean, how can you even think this?" Um, And I'm sure the look on my face, looking back at him, is probably equally the same. Like, I mean, how can you? how can you say what you're saying, right? How can you, you say that you want to circumscribe, circumscribe free speech in any way. Um, so I don't know if that really explains it well, but the, I mean, the idea is like, you're just, you're, you're taking everyone else and assuming that they're exactly like you and when they're not, uh, you don't understand it. And that could cause you to judge them harshly. Um, so similar yeah. to the fundamental attribution error, You have to kind of you have to take a step back and say, now, what what what's the situation here? What are all the possible explanations? Why could somebody for some reason think differently for me? And remember that we we're all our own people. We've all come from different backgrounds, um, different educations, um, different families with different political opinions, different social opinions. And that can lead us all to come to very valid, but yet different conclusions. Uh, So in those instances, this is where dialogue becomes important. That's when you Mm. talk to people say, well, you know, I I believe that free speech means free speech for everyone, even if it's speech you don't like, you know, why is it that you believe that we should circumscribe certain speech? You know, who's going to make the decision on what needs to be circumscribed, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. then you come to Maybe not in agreement, but to an understanding that there's different points of view out there in the world. Do, do you think that this explains one of the
0: challenges we have? Like, example is you're, you're on a phone call with a couple of friends, and everyone assumes that everyone is dying to get the vaccine for COVID 19. And then they're shocked when they find out that maybe you uh, don't. And I, I'm not saying you, Scott, but I mean, I, I've been on these calls, right? People are. People will tell me, Stefan, you're a smart, rational guy. I, I don't understand why you aren't, um, you know, lining up. You, you have to be one of the smart guys that realizes that everyone needs to get a vaccine." And they, they're, they're shocked, honestly, when I just raise questions. And it's been that way through all of COVID. Um,
1: do, do you think this helps explain some of that? Oh, definitely. Um, and I would imagine they're probably looking at themselves as being smart, rational people, and they're coming to the conclusion that you need to get the vaccine. And we, we thought Paul was smart and rational, but he's coming to a different conclusion. So maybe he's not as smart and rational as we thought he was. Right. 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 And that's the problem with it. Uh, when two smart and rational people can look at the same facts and still come to different conclusions. And, and this is where confirmation bias may come into play. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, one person smart, rational hears about the vaccine, and their bias leans towards COVID is incredibly dangerous. We need to get the vaccine. Whereas your bias may lean towards, you know, what this is a new, untested vaccine. You know, the the fatality rate on COVID is, you know, what like not, what the latest numbers were, like point less than point one percent. Maybe we don't really need to be taking this risk with, with this new vaccine for a disease or a virus that isn't as Deadly as that's being portrayed to be,
0: uh, yeah. Well, and and I I feel like this model also explains to me when I'm in conversations with people th- th- their sort of justification or th- or assumption around meta narratives, and and so one of those I would say is that the only way for us to deal with climate change is uh, to put solar and wind everywhere, and and that's going to fix the problem, um, or that. That um, th- the way in which we see race problems in America today can only be addressed through anti-racism, and and so uh, recently I, I was uh, talking with a friend on, on Signal, and I mentioned my frustration with people accepting some of these narratives without actually going into the depths of them, and he was I think taken back because he assumed yes of course. In this case, we were talking about uh, police homicides of unarmed black uh, or people of color. And I said, well, I, I looked at the data. The data tells me a different story. So well, what are you talking about? Of course, the cops are racist, of course. And he was surprised that I wouldn't agree with that, that, that uh, maybe I had a different perspective on some of the challenges that we have. So I, I feel and I feel like this, this consensus is, is really politically aligned today. It's not just Midwest or, or regional, it's very much what is your political position and then and then you you, you sort of see this this consensus why well, everyone must understand this because it's just factual, even, even though it you know you ask the people to present the data and the facts and
1: they, they can't do it. right. sort of this idea that we care about everyone, so we're correct and we don't under, we don't understand how you cannot care about people by not thinking the right. same way we do yeah absolutely all right these are great what, what do you got next for us so the next one's this is my current favorite one this is illusion of control and i think it's my favorite <laughs> one right now because I, I see a lot of this with the response to covid um, so the illusion of control is pretty simply the the feeling that we need to take action in order whenever some adverse situation comes about we need to take action to try to correct it even if that action actually makes the situation worse Um, so one example is uh, doctors if you go to the doctor with some sort of a pain some sort of a problem oftentimes the doctor even if they don't know what it is rather than saying you know what let's give it a week and see what happens they'll they'll try to prescribe some sort of intervention and sometimes this this ends up leading to just the doctor causing more problems um, than what you initially went in with, depending on what the intervention mm-hmm. is. And with COVID, I think we saw this. Um, we got this new virus. We don't really know what it is. Uh, so rather than sit back and maybe try to gather more information, maybe kind of see how the virus is acting, uh, we jumped right into lockdowns and, uh, you know, stay at home orders and discussions about masks and closing the borders. So, and, and this comes to in Western culture and especially in the U.S., we sort of view the man of action or the person of action as sort of heroic and strong and decisive. Um, mm. and, and so the idea of like, well, maybe what I did made it worse, but at least I did something right. We, we place a <laughs> lot of emphasis on that. When the reality is sometimes just kind of sitting back and waiting to gather more information will help you come to a better uh, a better uh, plan or strategy to overcome the situation. And sometimes, right. I mean, let's just be honest, sometimes the situations just revolve, resolve themselves or they, they end up not being as, as dire as it's made out to be. Um, so this one, yeah, like I said, it's currently my favorite and I think we can see a lot of examples of it. And one of the dangers of this is it kind of kicks into another bias called uh, like status quo bias, or you're going to talk about entropy um, or inertia, like this idea that once we move, once we take that action and we move to some extreme, then it becomes difficult for us to move off of that extreme. So once we implement the lockdowns, then even though there's evidence that the lockdowns really aren't having an effect people are afraid to move away from the lockdowns, especially Mm -hmm. politicians, because they're afraid that if I lift the lockdown order and then people die, I'm going to get blamed for it. So, uh, so it, it disillusion of control. It, it, I kind of see like with this COVID situation, it, it seems like it's backed us into a corner that we, we painted ourselves into a corner that we don't know how to get out of. Yeah. Until the politicians like, you know, the folks like Abbott down in Texas. And I think what Mississippi just have finally said enough is enough. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we're going to need more politicians like that to step up and say, you know what, we're done. Right. <laughs> we don't care, yeah. you know, how many footprints we get in the paint on the floor. We're, we're, we're done. We're out of this corner.
0: Yeah. No, I, the illusion of control. I, I, and I I'm going to share an example. You can tell me if you think this is, this is on point, but you know, my consulting days, I would be in rooms and, you know, beginning of the year, January, February was always planning time and they were looking at all the projects that they wanted to uh, deploy over the year. And, you know, they would start looking for problems that they wanted to solve and they would get to certain problems. And you'd kind of ask yourself, like, what are you actually getting out of trying to control this this issue? Um, Yes. I mean, you you can invest massive amounts of resources into trying to change uh, and get a different outcome here. But you're 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 not going to really maximize much of anything. And Like controlling this, you're you're not really getting much value out of it. So I mean, I oftentimes would say, you know, the suboptimal system is the most optimal you're going to find. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that you know relates at all to the illusion of control. Yeah, de- this idea that we we've got to control it. Yeah, it definitely
1: sounds like it. Uh, like I said, I'm you know the CEO who sits on his hands and does nothing and and says like you like you just said well the the situation's suboptimal but the cost benefit analysis says like making this decision making the situation optimal is going to cost a ton of money or a ton of time and resources and we're really not going to get a lot out of it is not going to be looked at as a strong decisive leader so right yeah um, there's
0: other costs to it which actually have very little with the outcome that you're trying to control exactly
1: right? and no. You know, and this isn't to say that you should always sit back and not do anything. This is where, you know, you have to, right. you have to look the situation through. But if, if you don't have a lot of data, you know, if you don't have a lot of data in the situation or the outcome is low stakes, you know, obviously you might want to lay back. If, you know you have a ton of data and the situation is high stakes then maybe you you do start to take some actions but if you do sure. that right you have to look at the reversibility you know can i if i take this action can i reverse it and i think this is where we're coming into some problems with COVID. like i said we're there we're seeing a political unwillingness to reverse the decisions to admit that maybe this didn't work out quite as well as we had hoped uh and with the wars too you know Yeah. Well,
0: and actually, this is a great concept to be bringing up right now when they're talking about all the stimulus spending that they want to do. There's, there's seems to be an assumption here that, well, we caused all this damage last year by shutting down these economies. We can, we have the control and the power to fix that damage by, by putting, pumping all this money in, but it's not necessarily a one to one match. And the, the, the businesses that have been shut down, many of them restaurants, they're not going to come back overnight. They're not going to shore up their balance sheets overnight. Uh, and then there's there's other damage that's been caused by this, right? Um, and we were talking offline, just the, the psychological obstacles that are now going to be in place, I mean are, are how many people are going to be uncomfortable going into a restaurant that's indoors that's 100% capacity even after everyone's been vaccinated? Right. And, and these restaurants, many of them survive on very thin margins. Right. I, I remember reading a story about a, a restaurant from Sonoma that said, you know, in, in, in the last it was basically March to I want to say June or July. He said we have wiped out 10 years of capital from building up our restaurant. Like everything that we invested for 10 years is now gone. We're running on fumes. If we don't have 80 uh, percent capacity running, we, we're not making money. And they were only allowed to open at 50% capacity, right? So uh, this, there, there is an illusion of control that we can, we can change this and, and we have the power to do it. And uh, so when we're, when we're thinking about all the stimulus money going on, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even making an argument for or against stimulus. I'm more just noting the point that you, you, you think that there's this idea of control of what you actually can change and you can flip these switches. And that's just, in many cases, not the case. Exactly.
1: And that's, All right. that's actually a perfect segue into my last one, which is unintended consequences. <laughs> um, so that's yes, my favorite. One of my favorites, right, this one is simply, I mean, this is a simple one, you know, it's an unintended consequence is an outcome, um, from an action, a purposeful action that you took that you didn't anticipate. Um, so talking about what you were, you were saying, like, uh, the unintended consequences of the lockdowns are uh, an increase in deaths of despair, um, you know, suicides, yep. overdoses, alcoholism, um, um, spousal abuse, child abuse. Uh, then you also have all the in- unintended consequences of putting businesses out of business. I mean, some people would argue those were intended consequences. I'm let's not going to go there. Let's just say this <laughs> yeah, wasn't this, the this intent. This is true. Um, yeah so in this, I mean, you really have to look at this and this is, you're going to talk about second order thinking. Uh, this is where second order thinking really kicks in, right? It's my purpose for doing this is X, but I need to also consider Y and Z that might happen. Right. And and just because it's unintended doesn't mean you can't sort of, you can't look and use reason to, to anticipate the unintended consequences. It's just a, um, it, it, it's it's just that you don't intend for them to come out so just a little and, hard looking uh, taking a hard look at something and saying okay this could be the impact so do we really want to do this um yeah. and one and, and they don't always have to be negative sometimes they're positive right and yeah.
0: uh you know what one of the ones i think a lot of people are looking at is like well there was a there was reduction in um in emissions last year because of less people being on the road and so you, you could argue, well, that's, that's an unintended consequence of, of the shutdowns. That was a positive if you're really concerned with, with CO2. And I, they, they, can, they can cut both ways. I would, I would argue on balance many times it's negative consequences because the people that are promoting a position are biased towards it, it being achieved or implemented. So they minimize the negative ones if they even think about them at all. And in the good example, I think, right now is the discussion around the minimum wage being raised, exactly in this country, uh, where the analysis is already. In fact, in this case, they've actually have looked at the at least some of the consequences, uh, and they've noted that many, yes, many people will see an increase in their wages, and others will see their jobs lost, or will have will have uh, job loss going on for an extended period of time because. Companies can't afford the $15 an hour if they're in certain geographies. And, uh, you know, then there's another side of that argument as well. It says, well, yeah, but the people that have these jobs, they need more money, they can't support a family. So it's, it's a complex issue. However, um, you you can already see that many people that are pro $15 an hour, have, they, they minimize any of the the negative consequences. It's just, again, it's, it's the cost of doing business. And so um, – yeah, this this is a, a very valuable one, and I, I, to me, it aligns very much with what Thomas Sol, the the example I gave from his book earlier in the conversation about, you know, asking yourself, well, what happens then, and what happens then, and then it's, it's kind of the the six sigma approach of why, 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 ask the five whys until you understand the root cause,
1: right? Exactly, and one of the things to remember here too is. How temporal the unintended consequence is to the purposeful action makes a huge difference. If you take the action this year, but you don't see the unintended consequence until next year, uh, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of argument over, well, did that unintended consequence actually come from that purposeful action? and when you're talking about something like the economy and the government that is a highly complex system there's going to be it's going to be easy for politicians and economists and the fed to kind of obfuscate the the connections between the minimum wage and the increased unemployment and the higher prices and the the lack of businesses reopening after the the shutdown is lifted
0: and, and i would i would take that step further we're we're Generating massive amounts of cash that's being generated on balance sheets and printed and put into the real economy. And there are, there's people on the MMT side that we know that would argue that we're not seeing inflation, therefore it's really not a problem. I'm hearing from other people that say, well, yeah, you're not going to see that problem. It's 10 years out, right? The iceberg's there. It takes, and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, inertia in a bit, but you're moving in the direction of that iceberg, right? And the iceberg's growing on the bottom. And it takes a lot of energy to move so that you don't actually hit that. But it's 10 years out. So the person today is telling you, no, I've got I've got problems to fix me. That's right in front of the ship. But that's <clears throat> that's that's part of the problem. You have to have long-range thinking and you need some people to to have an honest discussion about the long-term consequences and value them appropriately. Yeah. And I, you know, as as you were sharing these models, what really came to mind one of the the purpose that we have with this podcast is to create that informed citizenry. That aren't biased necessarily just by their political beliefs and talking points, but are thinking through the problems in, in a very, you know, a model-based way or a more critical way so that they can challenge the, the people that are making these decisions, right? And not only the decisions in your own life, but the decisions of those who are elected to govern us. Uh, because let's face it, they are there. The the incentive structures are not there to make them or have them have an honest conversation with
1: you. Right. And this, this is actually an argument against term limits too. Um, if someone goes to Congress and they know they're only going to be there for six or eight years, then they have no incentive to, or they have every incentive to pass legislation or or implement a policy that's going to benefit them right now, but 10 Mm -hmm. or 12 years down the road, um, it, there's going to be some consequences to that come out of it. Well, you know, they're not going to be around to deal with it. So they're going to do what right. in the short term um, serves them. So, yeah. yeah. So when you're, when you're talking to your friends about term limits, there you go, there's an argument against them.
0: <laughs> you can, you can go against them. Nice. All right. Well, uh, I guess, uh, I think that's a fantastic list. Uh, we, can, we can kind of kick off with some of the ones I have then I think. Um all right, so the, the first one that I had down was entropy, and it's this. Uh, there's, I think there's a, it's a, it's a term or, or a concept that comes from from physics, but it's it's a measure of the chaos and or randomness in a system, and. I, I found this concept so fascinating because I, I, I know that I learned it in high school and I took uh, a couple of uh, classes in high school and I took a few in college of physics and I, I never did a, a great job, but um, I, I thought the concepts were really interesting. But uh, once I rediscovered this, this idea of entropy going uh, through a book on, on business and data science where they were using it as a way to describe a model, an environment. In this case, they were looking at uh, poisonous mushrooms and trying to understand if they could they could identify certain species that would actually be poisonous. And uh, entropy was was at a hundred. Each each of these mushrooms, if they could identify the ones that could actually reduce the entropy, they could create a model to identify the ones that um, were most likely to cause you to um, to be poisoned or not. And so I, so I learned that concept. And then I started to expand it out to sort of a broader set of, of observations. And so, you know, I, and I shared it with you offline sort of this idea of like a messy room is, is sort of maximum entropy, right? You've got clothing everywhere. You've got books on the floor. There's, everything in that room is just an absolute <laughs> – it's, it's at the top of the entropy level. And then you go in, you clean it up, you dust things off. Everything is organized like a bookshelf in the back. And um, the, the, the entropy is, is reduced and you come down to a state of order. And it, it, it made me realize that so much of the effort that we put in from, from cleaning our house to creating a, a life of meaning is, is about fighting the entropy or the chaos around us. So I, I see it uh, not so much as a decision-making tool, although I think obviously on a very granular level, the, the example I gave of being able to use it to create a model, it absolutely is, is useful and certainly if you're doing actual work and it uh, has to do with thermodynamics, I'm sure this concept comes up more, more, uh, uh, <laughs> more frequently than not. But uh, in, my, in my way of thinking, it's, it explains so much of the effort that we put out, right, uh, that, that we, we put into the universe. And, you know, the last example I give was, was actually a, – a, uh, it was an article, I think, in Edge magazine where they asked a series of people their thoughts on um, concepts that they wanted to share – and they uh, – one of them was talking about entropy and sort of sands on a beach and how sand on a beach, before you see anything, is it's organized in one set way. And then you create a sandcastle and that's organized in another way. Uh, and then it just sort of resolves back into uh, whatever the the elements are going to provide, from the water hitting it to the, to the wind taking it out. And so th- this – we're we're fighting against this this entropy you could say it's just the sand on the beach it's that maximum level then you you reduce that by creating that sand castle and then the elements kind of come back so again we're we're sort of fighting fighting against it and um i think there's value in fi- fighting against entropy on our personal level it, it provides meaning to our lives and i think uh, having a meaningful life is is impactful um I don't know what. What are your thoughts on
1: on introverts? No, this is this is a good one, and I've I've been making a lot of use of this in my personal life recently. Um, being an introvert and someone who spends a lot of time in my own head, personal relationships have a lot of times been put on the back burner, and if you don't put effort into maintaining those, they decay over time. So you know, now that I'm yeah. with my girlfriend, and you know, I'm really happy. She's the love of my life. I I I'm using this to remember that. I can't just spend all my time working on this podcast and this blog, right? I have to put time <laughs> and effort into the relationship with her. Um, and so that's, yeah. that's been a huge benefit to me so that, that now things, I'm now in the best relationship that I have. And, and so, or yeah. that I've had, so, uh, so th- these things, I mean, they really do apply to the real world. Um, so yeah, well, I,
0: Listen, mentally inscriptive, We want to help you with your love lives too. It's not just about thinking through problems, right? This is we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna surpass right. Doctor Phil by year two.
1: I promise. Yeah. You. I mean, on Tinder, your profile is like I understand entropy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, the, the the next model I wanted to share was also one taken from physics, uh, which is inertia, and the definition is is an object in motion with a certain vector wants to continue moving in that direction unless acted upon. Right? so if you're an object and you're not moving, you want to stay uh, not moving. If you're actually moving, uh, you're you're, you're going to hit friction, but then you want to continue to move in the in the direction that you're moving. And again, this is another concept that I that I came across early, and it was always in the concept of physics. Right, now this to me is again the value of thinking through mental models because you start to take these concepts and apply them in other aspects of your life, and. Uh, when I started, when I when I revisited inertia, and I started to think about the challenges that I see in you know when, as a consultant when I'm in organizations, I see the challenges that they're going through. When I'm see people, and, and you know, habits is a good example, right? I see people that, that will tell me that oh, I can't change my habits because their their habits are fixed or static, right? And yet they they develop new habits over a series of time just by their their life moving forward right so at some point that inertia is being overdone it's just not not in a controlled way and i, I see that they they someone's like i i can't move from sitting in front of this tv it's just not possible it's like well once you move off from the tv and start walking then it's easier to, to continue walking it's the same thing as starting a habit and you you've got you've got sort of this mental inertia that blocks you from from moving forward and um and, and once you realize that that's what that is and that there is this other side of it, right? That once that inertia is moving moving in, in a, a direction, as we said, you know, it wants to continue moving down, just like you start an exercise regime, you want to continue moving down that regime. Uh, it's, you, you start to say, okay, well then that's what I have to overcome. I have to have the starting energy to move past the inertia to get going. And then I'm going to have to maintain that inertia because there's friction, right? So in the case of working out, I'm going to have other responsibilities. Maybe I'm tired one day. Maybe I'm injured. That's some of the friction that I'm going to have to overcome that. But I'm to, so I'm going to have to put more energy into continue to go. But if I keep on moving in that direction, I'm going to want to stay in that moving in that direction. So again, it's another concept from physics that I, I like to think about in other aspects of my life because it, it explains uh, to me why I'm not wanting to move or challenge myself or I'm feeling, if I'm feeling lazy, what I need to overcome.
1: Exactly. Uh, this one is great. I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten up in the morning and you know I've kind of sat on the couch and started playing solitaire on my iPad and you know <laughs> the amount of energy it takes me to get up off the couch and come upstairs and start writing or whatever I have to do that day is <laughs> it's massive. So you yeah, know right. when you're aware of it, it, it's easier to overcome. I think. Um, one way I kind of look at this uh, is. I look at our society as being the default state is uh, of a meritocracy where people who can excel in certain areas will generally rise to the top, not always, but generally rise to the top. Uh, If we want to overcome that and have this sort of a quality of outcome type of society, that's going to require a massive amount of government regulation, enforcement. That's going to all cost money in order to maintain that system. So when, when we talk about this idea of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome, it, if you're favoring equality of outcome, then you consider how much effort is going to have to go into that. And it may seem mm-hmm. easy, but we brought it up before, you know, Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron's short story. It's, it, it's an absurd example, but it, it shows you just how far or how, how hard sometimes it can be to come to Uh, these outcomes that you want when you're going against sort of the the natural flow or the the natural tendency of Mm -hmm. society. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. That's a great way of thinking about that problem. Right, yeah. So I I think inertia is great. Um, You know, sometimes, like we've talked about cost-benefit, so sometimes maybe the the benefit is just not justified by the cost that goes into uh, trying to overcome that inertia. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. All
0: right, so the next one that's on here is uh, system one, system two thinking. And anybody who's read Thinking Fast and Slow will be uh, familiar with this concept. But um, it really is a description, a high-level model of thinking through. We've got system one is more your uh, intuition or your emotional state that is reactive to decisions or your environment more quickly than system two, which is your logical state, which is your ability to reason. And so what you when you think of the mind working in that t- those two ways, and we, we talked a little bit about that earlier, and when we talked about Jonathan Haidt, sort of this, you have this intuition, which makes you feel about a decision or a topic, and then you, you justify it or rationalize it with this logic. This model also explains a lot about how people have their biases or their heuristics that they work through and then what it takes to actually move into system two, right? So if, if you start to, at least for me, I think the, I shared this earlier, but when I started to think about how I came to my own conclusions on my topics and my principles and my beliefs, and I th- uh, processed them through this model, I, I really was stunned in a way because I, I started to ask myself, well, how much of my, principles and beliefs on certain topics are really reasoned? Or have I just really just come up with a bunch of justifications that make sense to me? And is there a way in which you can you can bypass that and and still get comfortable that you've you've done a good job. You've triangulated the information, you've you fought against that bias that's really sitting in kind of the system one, and you force yourself in the system two. Because you think of ask yourself how many times you came across contradictory information to what you believed, and, and and I'll just again we're using some of these topics, but let's just say you come across information that says uh, we actually can um, uh, cut down on on climate change with with solar panels, and uh, and and here's a study, and it's and it's well constructed. It's the model is is uh, well done. It's it's been reviewed by people that you respect, and it, does it really change your opinion? Does it really challenge you to now say, "Well, maybe I'm wrong. What am I? How can I actually evolve on my ideas?" And I would, I would argue, many of us—I I know this is a challenge for me—struggle with that. And and there was actually a great uh, chain on Twitter from James Lindsay, uh, who's a controversial topic, uh, controversial person today on Twitter because of the topics that he discusses, uh, very anti-critical race theory, and the way he goes about it, where he's trolling most people, but. He talked about his bias. So when COVID came out, he was calling all the people that were challenging lockdowns, uh, idiots, stupid people. And and then he, he, yesterday or just this week shared how he came to the opposite conclusion, how as he looked into the data uh, for Georgia, he came to the conclusion that those people that he had been mocking were actually correct. And the data did change his opinion. Now, he went on to trolling everybody else. So his personality didn't change, right? Uh, but he, he opened up to the fact that he, his, his conclusion actually changed, uh, which, which is difficult. But uh, I think when you realize the system one and system two thinking, if you respect that, rather than, and then this goes into some of the other uh, models that you suggested earlier today, which is this idea of um, how, the context. You, you start to look at someone and say, well, they, they believe in this topic. Let's just say it's, it's um, you know, climate change as an example right well, I, I don't believe in solving climate change that way they must be ill-informed or they must be uh biased in this way or you know they're just stupid whereas I'm the logical one ask yourself did they not go through a did they go through a different process from system one to system two reality is they went from system one to system two the same way you did and they, and, and it's very possible that you're still sitting in system one so anyways what do you think about this this
1: concept I, this is a great concept and uh... I think I was kind of characterizing um, uh, some of my some of my mental models is sort of foundational. But this this is maybe the the one concept that underpins all of this is this idea of you apply your mental models um, to your intuitive response in order to try to come up with a conclusion of whether your intuitive response is correct or not. And you have to remember, like you said, the mental models that I'm applying and the way I'm using them may not be, may not result in the same conclusion as you. And this is one reason why we have differences of opinions. And I think as long as we're both honestly applying those models, then our differences are our, our, each of our opinions is justified. And that's a situation where we may just have to agree to disagree. And it, it mm-hmm. really illustrates that in a lot of these instances, there there is no correct answer. There's just yeah. opinions uh, based on how we look at the world. So this this is a good one, and to always always keep that in mind. And one a note you have in here that I think is is really great is that it doesn't vary by intelligence or other factors. So anyone can, everyone out there should be trying to get themselves into system two, especially when you have a high stakes decision or or it's a high stakes situation uh, because you you want that backstop you want that sort of confirmation that your intuition is correct
0: yeah well you know honestly and I'm glad you brought that up I have been and I, I tweeted about this earlier this week this sort of disappointment with your intellectual heroes falling into what appears to be system one thinking when you know it exactly what what you just said right that everyone follows this model it, it doesn't matter if you're elon musk now unless you actually have a a bypass of the emotional brain right so so you are born that way your 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 system is designed to be less emotive and more rational certainly there's a spectrum there right but in general the, the people that we're, we're looking at they uh, they follow this model and regardless of the intelligence. And so the last four years, we've seen this play out in, in very bizarre ways where the, you know, kind of Trump being a, a sort of a target, if you will, for both people that were politically aligned one way or the other. And then coming at this and, and sort of saying, are we, are we talking about are we talking about things from a system one perspective or system two? Right? Have we got to the point where we're talking about um, the model of about how his engagement, perhaps his trolling, and other ways of, of leadership is detrimental to the country versus the policy side of it? And I use that because I'm thinking specifically of someone like a Sam Harris, who who I've enjoyed reading. I enjoy his perspective. I still do, and he he makes a very compelling case why why Trump is so dangerous. And I have to wonder, though, how much of this is rationalizing his distaste for this person, because his entire body of work has been on moral rationality, right? The moral landscape and his, his concept and views on morality. And he sees someone that's completely immoral. He sees the, the current president, Biden, being uh, more moral, right? He doesn't have to be a moral person, but it's relative to it. So he sees this as, as, as less of a problem. So then you, ra- you 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 bring in this the the weight of of his ability to articulate his his views, and you're you're asking yourself, is, is that even the right lens? Did you did you reach the right conclusion? Um, and how much of that is just based on your, your true distaste for this man? Um, and and that's again, that's not necessarily that he's wrong. He he could be he could be right. His his reasoning at the end of the day may actually be correct, uh, but. You, you just – I've, I've seen that several several times in the last uh, couple of years where particularly around Trump and I bring that up not not because I want to talk about Trump all the time but it, that seems to be a, a sort of uh, a magnet for this kind of concept. It brings this out in people in a way that other topics I'm not sure do. Right. Uh,
1: as you were talking, something kind of occurred to me. I did it again kind of. Okay. As you were talking, something <laughs> occurred to me. Um you can have different levels of sophistication in your system, too. So yep. Trump says that he wants to pull out of Afghanistan and you do not like Trump. So your intuition is like, is this is a bad idea? And then you justify it by saying, well, if Trump wants to do it, it must be bad. Therefore, I'm against it. That's a pretty unsophisticated. At least I would view it as this pretty unsophisticated model that you're applying in system two, uh, because you're you're basing that decision on nothing more than how well you like the person who's delivering the message. Right. So right. not only do you want to get into system two and, and maybe we could, maybe this is kind of the, This is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is to help people make their system to thinking more sophisticated. So you move move beyond those simple models that really aren't based on a lot of – aren't very meaty and moving into, okay, this is a good idea. Even though it's Trump and I don't like him, this is a good idea because it has wasted a ton of money. We're getting nothing out of it or it's a bad idea because when we leave, we're just opening the people of Afghanistan up to – tyranny and uh, you know, uh, terrible lives. So yeah. you, you definitely want to move beyond just those simple rationales for your intuitions. Absolutely. Um,
0: the next one I have here is, is second order thinking. We, we, we already talked about that. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's it's the unintended consequences. They're, they're cousins or similar ideas depending on the day. But it's really, again, asking that question – uh, you can use Six Sigma and ask the, the five or six or seven whys to try and understand if I if I make a decision and it's critical, right? As you point, the criticality of a decision, reversibility of the decision is it really depends on how much emphasis you need to put on understanding the, the consequences. Putting on a shirt is different than buying a house, right? Uh, so second order thinking, I, I, I mentioned this. I came across it with Thomas Sowell and it, it just – I, I see that every day and it, it kind of is going to probably apply to the next, next topic I have, which is opportunity cost. But I feel like every day when, when someone tells me, I just want to do X or I just want to do Y, I just want to do Z, we're just going to fix this problem, you, know, you ask them, well, what's the second order impacts? So they can never describe them. And, and that's always a, a, a sign uh, that I'm, I'm scared. Exactly. Right, exactly that that they're not they're not putting in the effort to understand what their decisions which in these cases are are very significant and difficult to reverse um, they're, they're not putting in the time to understand what that looks like
1: exactly um, unintended consequences I when I look at sort of second order thinking I unintended consequences I, I view as sort of uh, as a subcomponent of second mm-hmm. order thinking but it's a great example um, one thing to keep in mind, too is we're not just talking second order thinking. I, th- I think of it as second order, third order up to nth order thinking. So yes, sure. What are the consequences of your action, right? The direct consequences of your action, but then what are the consequences of our response to those consequences? And then what are, our, what are the consequences of our response to those consequences? So you can, you can keep going down the chain. Um, So, uh, you go into the doctor with an issue, you've got high cholesterol, doctor prescribes a statin. So then you end up with side effects from the statins, um, you know, maybe sexual performance issues or something. So then you put, get put on another medication. Well, then you have side effects from that medication. So then the doctor puts you on another medication. So, right. So there's layers to it. And at some point you have to say, okay, this is crazy. And and this is the difficulty of accountability, especially in a complex system like, again, economics and the government is we could be experiencing an impact to something today that was caused three links down the chain by a policy that was put into place 10 or 15 years ago. So how do we we have to be able to chase to trace that causal relationship back and in a complex system I mean it's almost impossible and there can be a lot of finger pointing so rather than going back and fixing the root cause of the problem we're left with nothing but trying to treat the symptom or living with it
0: yeah yeah absolutely no, it's it, it's a simple concept just ask why what happens what happens what happens and, and, and go down that chain when you're making uh, big decisions so the last one I have here is opportunity costs, which is which comes from the field of economics. And definition I have here is doing one thing means not being able to do another, right? That you can't do two things; they're incompatible to be able to do at the same time. And you know the story that I want to I want to share with this. I, I learned the concept in high school uh, with my economics courses, and then it it just really was highlighted to me during the uh, invasion of Iraq uh, and Afghanistan after nine eleven. And I, it was a couple of years in. I, I was I was against the war from the very beginning. Uh, mostly, my, my my reasoning was that the the intelligence seemed flawed, just at a very high level, uh, knowing knowing the political factions and how they operated. The the idea that, um, anyways, I we could we could talk about that. We'll save that for a different different podcast. So, anyways, I I wasn't for that war. But then it, it got me thinking about the opportunity cost of 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 going into Afghanistan, and Iraq meant that we couldn't deploy resources into other efforts. So in, in my mind, energy security. So I, I still recall to this day watching George Bush stand in front of Congress and, uh, and declare that they were going to – and ask for the vote to be able to go into uh, – to go to war with Iraq – and he had the – everyone was lined up. After 9-11, the, the entire country was ready for a response. And so you kind of going back to one of our models of sort of defaulting to action. And if he had said, listen, we're not going to go into Iraq. Uh, we are going to invest the same money, trillions of dollars into – Building the the next gen energy that's going to give us full energy independence. We're going to be able to never have to take oil at all, which will depress the demand globally because we're such a large consumer. And and where we would be today, right? So this is early two thousands. Imagine where we could be today, twenty years later, if um, if we had done that. And you know, I, I think about the same thing with Obama uh, when the Great Recession hit. And they move forward with uh, the ACA Act or Obamacare, and you can debate whether or not that was a good idea. But um, what it did mean is that it took it took some of the oxygen out of the room of really creating a, a different economy. And there was an opportunity there for a while to re- redeploy the economy, and and you you could talk about reinvesting in innovation, building up fundamental research, um, which has been declining for a period. So th- there, every time. We, we make these decisions. And the next one's going to come up is going to be on the Green New Deal. And what you're going to hear about is about 3 to $4 trillion in infrastructure spending, some of which I think is is going to be fantastic uh, if, they, if they actually get it done, which would be around roads and bridges. But you're going to hear a lot about what well, we need to invest trillions and trillions of dollars in solar panels and in wind. Maybe we do. But ask yourself if we're not investing in nuclear, which I know I'm biased towards nuclear, but I, I and we can save that for a different cast. But you're, you're not investing in nuclear, right? So ten to twenty years from now, when we've built up the capacity and we're running to, into any issues, maybe maybe solar and wind are able to to deliver what we need. We've missed out on that time to be able to focus on fission or fusion, um, sort of the next gen of, of energy that we need. So there's a cost in time, resources, and effort, and, and emotional capacity for, for these these big decisions. So you need to you need to be able to weigh those
1: out. Yes. And this is, like I mentioned before, perhaps the first mental model that I really came across when the professor mentioned that you can use opportunity costs in all, all areas of your life. And it can get incredibly complicated. So the, the opportunity cost of a decision – it, it, it goes beyond just money. So if I have a thousand dollars burning a hole in my pocket, I can I can choose to use that to go on vacation. So that's a thousand dollars that some people may look is going down the drain. But there's benefits to that, too. Like maybe I'm burned out from work or maybe that that vacation will help you overcome some entropy. So I'm burned out from work. Um I need to reconnect with my family or spend some time with my family uh, to help strengthen that relationship. And then that vacation helps you overcome that entropy so that you come back from vacation and you feel refreshed and you come up with 20 great ideas for podcasts. And one of those ideas ends up being, you know, the viral thing that launches your podcast into the stratosphere, gets you invited onto the Joe Rogan show and all of that. Um, Still, waiting, Joe. <laughs> right. Still waiting. So it, it's really hard to measure those. Um, and then the cost or the the opportunity that you're giving up is I could have taken that thousand dollars and invested it in Tesla, so but I don't know where Tesla is going to be as a stock when I sell it, so you know maybe that thousand dollars has become a million, maybe that thousand dollars has become a, a few pennies depending on which way Tesla yeah. stock goes, so you can really bog yourself down really bad, really hard looking at opportunity costs. So this is where you have, you have to bring in the idea of reversibility, uh, how high stakes is the decision uh, and uh, maybe whatever, whatever other factor comes in. So this is one where it can be a huge impact and it can, it can have a lot of benefits but it can also drive you nuts trying to decide what to yeah. do. And th- this reminds me of um, what, what was that study where kind of going back to the intuition versus reasoning um, some folks like they had some damage to their frontal cortex or something. So they, they no longer had it t- intuition or they no longer had emotion. So mm. they could, they couldn't make simple decisions because right. they spent all of their time analyzing it's just simple things like, should I go to the bathroom now or wait? Right? They, they couldn't right, come to yeah. a conclusion because they had no emotion feeding into the process. And I kind of think if you get right. too down, too far down the rabbit hole of opportunity costs, you can end up there. Sort of analysis paralysis.
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. No, that, you know, that's, that's a great point. Great, great point that people, um, <laughs> I, I've seen that in action I'm sure you have as well where people just they just want to they think that more information is needed to, to make the decision that because they're uncomfortable with it and um, you know they've they've at some point you, you you have a set of facts you have a set of parameters you use those to make the best decision possible and uh, you you know you, you do your best and that, what we're talking about here is not about perfection right this these models and this way of thinking is just a way in which you can you can increase your likelihood of getting decisions that you enjoy over the long term, right? That you don't look back with regrets and say, "Gosh, I I I shouldn't have done that. I, I really wish I'd spend more time thinking about it. I wish I'd been uh, more charitable to other people when I when I was in, engaging with them. Um, I wish I'd spend more time cleaning my room because I'm tired of the entropy. Uh, you know." All of these – these are just tools in your toolkit to, to be able to make, as I said, better decisions and, and be more satisfied
1: with those decisions over time. At least that's the way I see it. Exactly. I see it the same way too. So you, you have to take them and use them. Figure out how they work best for you and use them. Uh, and and yeah. the ones that work for you, great. The ones that don't work for you, great. Uh, just move on from them. You, nothing says that you have to yep. use all of these. In fact, if, if no. you search for mental models online, I mean, I think we're, there's probably numbering in the thousands of them at this point. Right. So yeah. the ones we presented here are the ones that work for us most of the time, the ones that we default to the most. And yeah. if you start with these, great. If you find others, then leave us a comment. Yeah, let's – if someone finds something incredibly helpful maybe we could turn that into a podcast one day uh discussing that mental model
0: yeah absolutely let us know uh wherever you're at add some comments um tell us why these mental models uh, what you like about them what what we're missing what your favorite mental models what have you found to be exceptionally powerful and um yeah engage with us we'd love to hear from you and uh Until then, until the next episode, take care, stay smart, and and keep on fighting the, uh, the complexity and confusion of the world. All right, take care.